welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with B Traits. Few foreign artists have been adopted by the UK quite like Brianna Price. Originally from Canada, the young DJ had a successful life in her home country before taking the plunge and moving to London. As part of Shy FX's digital soundboy crew, she became one of the most visible women in English dance music, especially after the release of her crossover smash Fever in 2012. The success attracted the attention of major labels, but also the BBC, who approached her about presenting her own monthly show on Radio 1. Within a few years, she had her own weekly slot, was covering for Annie Mack, and eventually landed the coveted Friday Night Shift. This exchange was recorded at a fundraiser for UN Women UK, organised by the not-for-profit label Needs as part of He For She London Arts Week. In conversation with Martha Pizienti Caden, B Traits looks back on her work in drug education, presenting underground sounds to mainstream audiences, and the fight for gender equality in the music industry. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with B-Traits is up next. So let's start with your weekend, because you've already played three shows since I last spoke to you, and that was only on Thursday. How have the, sh- the shows been? It was great, actually. On Thursday, I played a unannounced set at one of London's uh, drum and bass and jungle nights called Soul in Motion. It's a monthly, and it's the first jungle set that I've played in about five or six years. And it was really nice to be, um, to be back in that scenario. Funnily enough, like one of my teenage heroes, Dillinger, was also playing on the lineup. And uh, I thought that was quite interesting that only 15 years later would I play on the same lineup as him in a totally different vibe. But, um, but yeah, it was great. And then uh, Friday night, I had my label night in Toto at Village Underground with Steffi and Ryan Elliott. And then last night was also my label night in Manchester at Antwerp Mansions. And it was great. I haven't slept very much, but I've done a little bit of meditation, had a few hours, so we're good. And a few coffees, actually. 
Okay. And some whiskey. So you still got the energy. Yeah. Um, so drum, bass, and jungle is that important for you for your formative years? Definitely. So where I'm from in Canada is a really tiny mountain town, uh, literally like 10,000 people. It's where lots of the Vietnam War defectors escaped to and settled um, in the 70s. So it's a very like isolated hippie community. Everything's local, everything's organic. There's lots of um, independent craft shops, crystal shops, and... Uh, Nelson is known for growing some of the best marijuana in Canada. And I think growing up in an area like that, I guess I was really, really isolated. And when I first discovered UK dance music, it was jungle and breakbeats that really stood out to me because it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Everything on our radio stations was like alternative pop and, and rock. And my dad was always playing like, Michael Jackson records and Led Zeppelin records. And when I had finally discovered UK music, it was just, my brain exploded. Yeah. Yeah. So when you first started to be involved in the music scene in your local area, were you playing at drum bass jungle type nights? Not really. I think I started collecting records when I was about uh, 15 years old. And a lot of the stuff that I was collecting was more trip-hop and down-tempo. There's quite a scene there in Nelson. And like lots of breaks, and then uh, kind of gradually got into jungle. But I wasn't really playing that much in Nelson. I mean, Nelson does have a really surprisingly forward-thinking dance music community. So once I had discovered the music, I was able to kind of source it out in little pockets all around town. Um, like at this really, really cute little uh, music store that would always bring in uh, UK compilation CDs from like Ministry of Sound and Fabric. And uh, it just kind of opened my mind to a whole plethora of, of new genres. I mean, I didn't really do that many gigs in my hometown. Where did you go to go raving before you started to be DJing? Oh, I didn't really. I, uh, I wasn't really old enough because I was like, what, 15 years old. I was going to like house parties and stuff like that, but DJing wasn't really a thing. It was more, it was more dancing and, um, and movement for me. So I was a B-girl back then. I was breakdancing and was touring uh, like the provinces in Canada quite often to do breakdancing competitions. And I met lots of DJs along the way. And I found it absolutely fascinating the way that they created sets like for a competition, which was kind of different because it's not like a rave where you're playing music for like everyone to dance on their own individually. Like you're playing music for that b-boy at that moment. And then I obviously got my own pair of turntables and just started practicing as much as possible. So what were your first DJ sets like? Oh God. I remember the first time that I successfully mixed two tracks together, like successfully beat matched um, two records, and it was, it's kind of like this light bulb goes off in your brain and you're, you're kind of hooked on that feeling of blending two completely different tracks together. And I think, I'm pretty sure I started with, uh, with like trip hop and down tempo stuff because I thought it would be a lot easier because it's slower. And then uh, kind of gradually started playing more and more uh, jungle style sets, but I think I think definitely from the beginning I would always incorporate all different kind of genres in there. 
so not just drum and bass and breaks, uh, but I did come up through the drum and bass scene. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit more about the drum and bass scene that you were involved in in Canada before you came to London. Once I left Nelson, it, I mean, I moved to Vancouver, like literally the week that I graduated from high school because I wanted to get out of my small hometown. And I got a job at the Vancouver Film School, um, thanks to my cousin and her husband. And it just happened to be right across the street from the local record shop, which specialized in drum and bass and breaks. And it kind of was just a, a natural progression from there. I just started going to lots of events around the city and eventually just playing gigs around the area. There's this legendary drum and bass night called Automatic, which literally I saw all of my heroes there, like Goldie, and, uh, and that was when I first saw Shy FX play. It was, it was such a good night. And it, was, it was actually a really, really big scene in Vancouver. It was great. So there were some UK artists that were coming over to play, and then you were kind of getting a bit inspired by that. And then what about the kind of aesthetic of UK rave culture? What did that mean to you? Because obviously, your hand, the tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, I only got this uh, a few years ago, actually, and it's more my dedication to the rave. I guess after playing quite a few sets in Vancouver, I started uh, DJing in Whistler a lot. I was a resident DJ at um, one of the local breaks and drum and bass nights, and we would always bring in loads of, of UK DJs. And because Whistler is like a ski town, um, there was loads of kids from the UK that would go there for like ski seasons to work. And they would always see me DJing. And that's essentially how I started to build um, a name for myself in the UK. Because kids were going back home and telling everyone that they saw this girl play with some of their favorite DJs. I mean, before, before I started DJing at home in Nelson, like I'd, I'd never traveled. I'd never traveled before. I didn't have a passport until I started DJing. It, it's like kind of an interesting situation in Nelson, I guess, when everything was kind of kicking off with my dancing and I started discovering like DJing. One of the most crucial moments for me was when my parents separated. I didn't get on with my mom at all. And my mom decided to move um, to the big city to kind of pursue her own career, which I thought fair play to her. I was uh, then living with my dad and he took the separation really, really quite badly and struggled with alcohol and drugs. And I decided to leave home um, at about 16. And I moved, because marijuana is such a thing in that area, I, w I found this place about an hour outside of my hometown uh, where I could live rent-free in exchange for taking care of this grow operation that was in the basement, which was, which was like really cool at the time. I was like, yeah, totally. Like I, I, I look back on that time in my life now, and I'm like, what the fuck were you thinking? But really, like I was living off of $150 a month that I earned from cleaning this, this like forestry office once a week. And I would hitchhike to and from school every single day. And I just had this, like, I just had to graduate from high school. And I managed to graduate with honors somehow. And um, just that, that time of like being on my own and kind of like viewing myself as an adult, I spent so much time DJing. 
and that was that was really where I like honed my beat matching skills. So as as weird as that time was for me, it was so important to kind of creating this sort of idea that I could potentially do this as a career. Um, so when I got to Vancouver, I was very um, focused and I needed to, I was like going out every single night. I was still uh, quite underage. And it just, it kind of snowballed from there quite quickly. And then obviously doing these nights in Whistler and starting to build a fan base internationally, even though I'd never, <laughs> I'd never been on a plane before, basically. It, it was just a, a really incredible opportunity. Like I was being invited to these places that I could only dream of. And to consider that I was gonna go and play music that I liked for a job for people was just completely mind-blowing. So in Whistler, I met a DJ named SS who used to run this tour called the World of Drum and Bass Tour. And he needed an opening DJ for his uh, like um, USA dates and Canada dates. So I spent some time um, on tour with those guys. And weirdly, my very first European gig was an all-female lineup at a festival called the Sundance Music Festival in Tallinn, Estonia, like 13 years ago that was happening. Well, I just thought that was really kind of an interesting note that they were, they were still trying to push that. Yeah, it was great. And that was my first time I came to Europe. And then um, the following year, doing that same tour is when I met ShyFX. And on the tour, Basically, because I was the opening DJ, I still played quite eclectically and um, like kind of put a little bit of everything and was always uh, warping BPMs and stuff like that. And Shy was like, are you making any music? And at the time, I was uh, kind of experimenting in a program called Fruity Loops and looping Amen breaks in a program called Reason. And... What I call these ideas uh, is shells, like very basic beginnings of tracks. And I was getting really frustrated because I just couldn't finish anything. I didn't really know how track structure worked. And all of my peers, all these DJs who I were on tour with, they were all using much more advanced programs like Logic and Cubase and Ableton. And, um, and Shy really kind of took me under his wing and, and helped me finish a few tracks that were that were still really quite basic. I mean, he never would have put them out, but it was nice that he was like, this is, he was just trying to help me out. And then a few years later, he uh, asked me to actually become a part of uh, his Digital Soundboy collective. And it wasn't, it wasn't because he just wanted a girl in the crew. He made that very, very clear to me at the time. It was because I brought a certain energy and eclectic sound to the label, which is what Digital Soundboy has always stood for. And that time for me, it was, it was so inspiring to be a part of a collective of young, budding producers like Breakage and Benny Page and having Shy Effects there as, as our mentor was like the biggest helping hand I think we could have gotten. So I was living in Vancouver, uh, had pretty like decent DJ career, was playing in America quite a bit, but I still found myself frustrated that I wasn't really finishing anything decent that I could put out on Digital Soundboy because I literally had no one around me in Vancouver that was able to help, 
I mean, Shai was like eight hours ahead of me and I'd be calling him at six in the morning and he'd be like, I'm not answering your questions right now. Just, just wait till you're in London. So I'd been coming over to London to spend some time in the studio with those guys uh, quite a few times. And I realized that if I was going to make a career out of this, like really go for it, I needed to immerse myself in the UK dance music community. I had a like pretty comfortable life in, in Vancouver. Like I had a, a pretty serious boyfriend. I had a dog, a house, a decent, an okay job, like DJing around Canada. And I was like, I need to literally start again and and move, make the move to London. I mean, that was one of the, probably the most terrifying things I think I've I've done so far. But it's paid off, thank God. <laughs> Um, and it's been, it's been such a, a roller coaster. Once I got to London, I literally had to start from the rock bottom again, um, making no money at all, and just spending every single day in the studio and just learning as much as I could from, from Breakage and, and Benny Page and like Chase and Status were down, like two corridors down and Caspa was in there and um, it was a really interesting little crew. How did things change for you professionally when you got to London? Well, they didn't really change much because I hit the reset button. So I, was, I did nothing except for like isolate myself and spend every day in the studio. But I, I was so inspired by the fact that I could go out uh, every night of the week and hear music that I'd never heard before. Like there was just some incredible nights happening in London, like forward and, and I just, I completely, I would go out like every single night, just try and absorb as much as I possibly could. So ShyFX was kind of mentoring you informally at the time. Did you have any female mentors or anyone <laughs> to look up to? Not really. I mean, the drama bass community is like super male dominated. When I started DJing, I could count on like one hand how many successful female DJs I knew. It was like Chemistry and Storm, Rap, Flight, Mistress Barbara, Ellen Allian. And as, as like time went on, I guess the numbers kind of grew, but even in when I got to London, there wasn't, there wasn't very many. There was always this kind of like standoffish attitude, like if you were the new, the hot new female DJ. And um, I found that really, really frustrating that it's ever since my career started, it's, it's always been the main thing that people identify me as. They're like, you're a female. That's weird that you're a DJ. And um, I mean, it's still frustrating, but it's, it's, it's definitely getting better. Like I look back then and how I could count on one hand. And now it, it's, I mean, we've come such, such a long way. And I think events like this are so important to keep pushing this conversation. Yeah. And um, having gone through that experience and you are now a high-profile DJ yourself, how important is it to you to be visible with what you do and have younger women look up to you? I, I think it's incredibly important. I think that if anyone has been gifted this like, blessing to have a platform where you have a voice, it is so important to use it. Um, and to use it for some good and to try and, and, and push the conversation further, to inspire the next generation, 
to share your journey and your experiences and essentially like make small changes in our tiny scene. Like really it's 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 quite small and, and intimate and I think everyone has to, to have a part in that. And if you have a voice you definitely have to use it. Yeah. And do you find that there's like a certain responsibility or a weight that comes along with that? And if you do then how do you take care of yourself and make sure you're still speaking about what you want to speak about? I mean yeah, it's interesting because it, like obviously you can get a, a lot of backlash for, for speaking up and, and talking about certain things like the drug stuff that I do. Everyone, that's always yeah. quite funny. I mean, it's just, it's just important to, to actually say something and to be true to yourself and, and really express your own, the way, like where you stand on it. Okay, I just want to know about how you kind of protect yourself when you're mm -hmm. speaking up for things and how you kind of make What do you mean it? by protect myself? Just make sure that you're looking after yourself because it can be quite draining to always be someone that's like speaking out on behalf of like drug awareness and young women in music. Oh yeah, definitely. I think one of the main reasons why I do this stuff is just so that like, I mean, think about it. I'm a DJ. I produce and play music. I'm not fucking solving world, world hunger. I'm not saving the world. But I'm able to like at least you, like use my voice to speak up about something that might make some minor changes in, in my community. And I think it's, it's really important to, to remember that. And yeah, for me, it's just keeping that in mind that we will get somewhere eventually. And um, I mean, even with like the drug testing and stuff like that, we're always striving to push that conversation further. Yeah. And what about for managing your lifestyle as a DJ? It's obviously incredibly hectic. How do you, what, what wellness tips can you share? <sighs> I try to eat as healthy as possible, I guess, um, when I'm not on the road. Obviously, I would call it paleo. So I don't eat any grains at all. And um, it can be really difficult when I'm on the road, but I think I just travel with loads and loads of snacks. So keeping like a, a steady diet, I think, is really, really important um, to keep my energy levels up as well. Uh, drink loads of water and, and just kind of find a, a balance of when you're doing gigs and stuff like that. Like if you know you have a massive weekend ahead on the first gig of the weekend, don't smash it. Don't get shit-faced on the first day because you're going to have to maintain it for the rest of the weekend. Also, uh, I do a lot of yoga. I do a lot of moving meditation and exercise. And also meditation, which I'm on my second meditation already today. I just had a little moment in there just so I could clear my thoughts before I came up here <laughs> to chat a bunch of shit to you guys. So it, it, does, it does really, really help, especially um, after, for example, a weekend like this where uh, I've had very, very little sleep and I kind of need to think on my toes. Yeah. Um, going back to what you said earlier about the pushing forward the conversation about drug testing in the UK. So a while ago you made this documentary with the BBC, which is a video documentary yes. about drug testing and drug culture in the UK. How would you say the conversation has moved on since then? So um, the documentary is called How Safe Are My Drugs? And it came out in 2014. And actually, they're, they're still playing it. It's, it's airing in Germany right now, really weirdly. Because for me, it feels like it, it, was, it was quite some time ago, and we've, we've actually come such a far away since that, that beginning. But I made the documentary, and I, 
I obviously was interested in the subject because I'm a DJ and there's loads of kids that are always doing drugs at my events and it's always something that I think is important to just keep an eye on. You know, like if you are DJing and there's some kid like having a really shit time in the front row, that's always just something that I'm like conscious of. It's just the well-being of my audience in times where they're maybe not looking so good. And after I made the documentary, I, I didn't really know where I stood on it. I was kind of like, cool, I made this, made this doc. But about less than a month after it aired in the UK, my youngest brother, Ryan, he took too much MDMA on New Year's Eve in Calgary, in Canada. And he like just started collapsing and luckily one of his mates realized that he was not having a good time and they called the paramedics. By that time Ryan had completely blacked out and stopped breathing and he, he woke up in the ICU in the intensive care unit with a catheter tube down his throat and um, just like having that happen to me personally uh, changed the entire conversation. He's fine now, by the way. Um, I mean, he's completely fucking traumatized by the situation. I mean, the nurse wouldn't even take the tube out of his throat until he could write on a piece of paper, tube out, so that he could breathe on his own, which was fortunately terrifying for him so that he would never fucking do that again. Granted, he never, he never watched the documentary, but um, it's just as easy as that. Like, he took two bombs of MDMA so he took one, felt no effects, and then took another one less than 30 minutes later. And that is a f stupid, stupid move. And that's something that we're trying to push further in the UK. There is this, this bizarre, like, hush-hush about uh, drug education here, where if we spoke more openly about it, about how much you should take, and, like, the effects of what could happen, or when to go find help when you think you're not feeling very well. Um, I think it would change, it would change so much, and that's what The Loop is all about. Um, if you're unfamiliar with The Loop, it's a, um, a non-for-profit community company uh, led by Professor Fiona Misham, and we have been rolling out mast drug testing, which um, is multi-agency safety testing, uh, in which Fiona likes to call front-of-house testing, which is uh, the most groundbreaking thing that we've, we've gotten to here in the UK, which is where you can take a, an amount of your drug that you are planning to take to the testing facility, and you have to give it to them. You're not going to get it back. You're giving it away. And they will test that drug for you, and you come back in like less than 10 minutes time, and they're going to tell you exactly what's in it, uh, how strong it is, maybe what uh, is a uh, optimal percentage to take if you were to choose to do that drug. I mean, they're not going to tell you how to do it. They're going to say, like, how strong it is, if you should be careful, etc. Um, what side effects could be. And, it, I mean, it's something that's actually been going on in other European countries for ages now. And the fact that we're just starting to get it in the UK is annoying, but really, it is really exciting. And we've been able to roll it out successfully at a number of festival e festivals um, just last summer. And Fiona is very busy right now working towards um, this year's events and what we're going to be doing. So it's looking like what basically now what we're, we're pushing for, because obviously we'd love to see drug testing in, uh, in clubs, like in places like this, but it is incredibly... Uh, 
it's just not feasible for a space to have testing on site. So something that we're really trying to work towards is city site testing, where we'll have pop-ups in uh, popular areas like Shoreditch, like uh, anywhere where there's um, quite a few clubs in the area. And you'll be able to take your drugs there ahead of time, get them tested before you've, you've even had a drink or anything. So they'll, they'll be running in like the afternoon. So you can be able to do that, just ha to have that option ahead of time before your night out, which has proven to be really, really beneficial. I mean, loads of the people that bring their drugs to be tested at the festivals and events have then come to realize that the drug is at, at nothing like what they thought it was. Last summer we found loads of uh, like strange, what, what's the uh, malaria tablets, like crushed malaria tablets. Like there were um, a bunch of uh, MDMA press tabs that were basically concrete. There was nothing else in them, it was just a tab of concrete that someone was selling as ecstasy. I mean, you're probably not going to get ill from taking a concrete tablet, but who wants to actually do that, really? So it's, it's all really exciting on that front, and it's something that I think is also really important for our community, is to, to just look out for the, the younger generation who are going to be partying with us for years to come, hopefully. So. Yeah. So that documentary that you made about drug culture was with BBC Three, and your relationship with the BBC is very strong. You're on Radio One, and you yes. had like the only three-hour special show that's remaining because recently, loads of the shows went to two hours. Um, so I'm sure people will be very curious to hear about how you got into Radio One. So actually, when my career started picking up again in London, was when I wrote, I finally finished this record, and it was called Fever. And it was picked up by Mr. Jam, who started playing it every single week on his show. And at that time, it started building all this momentum, and it kind of uh, snowballed out of control um, for me. It was a track that I had written as a homage to like classic rave-style dance music. So Jam had been playing it loads in his show. I had uh, Polydor wanted to sign it, and all of a sudden, Radio 1 were like, hey, we'd, we'd love for you to do a pilot for our In New DJs We Trust show, which was a monthly hour show. That um, it was, It's actually like the residency show that we have on Radio 1 now. So that track kind of put, it put me on the map. I kind of started everything again for me. Like I started getting loads of DJ gigs. I finally got an agent. That was exciting. And yeah, it kind of, it all started picking up from there. So when I started on Radio 1, Fortunately, the UK likes a Canadian accent, I think. <laughs> I just kind of approached the show as if it was like a DJ set for me. So I was playing really eclectic music and um, trying to present talk on the radio. I'd done a few Rinse FM shows before, but I never had to speak on the microphone before, so that was like a totally new ballgame. And after a few months of doing the hourly in New DJs We Trust show, uh, they offered me my own weekly, which when the BBC asks you, like, do you want your own show, you can't really say no. And uh, that was what started my, my major relationship with Radio 1. And then uh, Annie Mack went on her first maternity leave, and somehow I got to cover uh, her 
7 p.m. Friday night show and her Sunday night show. And that really, um, it really, really stepped things up for me. I mean, I wouldn't particularly say that my style of music was maybe suited for that 7 p.m. show, but I kind of had to adapt it to, to make it work because it was a huge opportunity. Like, I got such great exposure from doing Annie's show, um, but it was kind of, it was kind of like a gift and a curse because I, I received this amazing new young fan base. But when I was doing all of these gigs at festivals, I was still playing like the DJ that I am. And uh, which is a little like quite a bit more underground than the 7 p.m. radio style. And uh, that was really confusing, I think, to my new audience and also some of my, my fans from before. So that was a bit tricky. And then I had, was in contract with Polydor for a second release in which they wanted another version of Fever. They wanted another track like Fever, another big like top 40 record. And that was the furthest thing that I wanted to make from my mind. Um, uh, I also was really quite uncomfortable with the, the not having creative control over my music anymore. And not to say that like being with a major label is, is, can be like that, but I was a very small fish in a very big sea, and it, I found it really, really just daunting. And um, the music that I was sending them, they didn't like because it was, it was too like, underground, it was too instrumental. And uh, I realized that I had, to, I had to basically get out of that contract and start again, again, and really kind of get back to the music that I loved and, and wanted to make. Um, so after the Annie uh, maternity leave, um, I spent another year in a different, um, a different slot on Radio 1, which I think is on, was on Sundays or Mondays. And then after doing that for a while, they finally gave me the Friday night slot which is my dream slot. It is 1 a.m. on Fridays from 1 to 4. <laughs> oh, thank you. And um, it is, I mean, it's such a good feeling to be a part of, of something like the BBC and to have the nation put their trust in my music taste is like, it is just the best feeling ever. And that show really is, like it is 100% my creation, which I don't know any radio shows on Radio 1 that let you have that much creativity and let you have that much free reign. Like I choose all of the music for that show. I choose, I choose all of the artists that we feature, all of the labels. I mean, the visuals, the, even down to like the voice drops, who is Miss Kitten, by the way, which, which she has smashed, she's wicked. And it, it, it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's such a cool thing to be able to do, and um, I absolutely love doing it. I mean, a few years ago, if you were going to tell me that I would be have a, a radio show on Radio 1, it just, I would have never believed. What, what would you say are the differences between the way you program your radio show compared to the way you curate a DJ set? So with the radio show, I'm really militant about it, it being like 80% brand new music and, and brand new artists. Um, so I think that's probably where it's quite different. It's always, every single week is brand new music. And with a DJ set, I don't know, that's okay. So, so for the radio show first, for example, um, it's three hours long, so I break up every hour and 
I'm always really conscious of the flow of the station as well. So currently, Danny Howard's show is before mine. And to bridge kind of his show into mine, that first hour, I always consider the first few tracks that I'm coming off of the back of Danny Howard, who um, plays quite a bit more commercially than, than I do. So I'll play um, maybe a, a more accessible record, like uh, something that has vocals in it, or something at a, a slower tempo, before I bang it out for the rest of the night. <laughs> and, then, and then as the show goes on, it gets faster, and it gets a bit darker, and a bit more experimental, a bit more weird, before we hand it over to the Essential Mix. Because the Essential Mix is often its own standalone feature, on Radio 1, it's, it's kind of like you just never know what to expect anyway. So, um, yeah, I just kind of roll it into that. Then the, the last hour of my show has actually become my favorite. It is a section I call the Chameleon Club Mix, and it is where I invite DJs onto the show to play back-to-back -back with me for an hour. Um, so it's more, it's more about the music, and it's more about um, me and another person creating the, a, a vibe, creating a set together, even though we would have never met each other before. And the point of it being called the Chameleon Club is that I am the chameleon. So I have artists come in like, like for example, someone like Chloe or Prosumer who will come in and play no faster than 110 BPM, like really chuggy, vibey stuff. And, um, and then the next week I'll have a DJ like Marcel Detman or DVS1 on that is like straight in with 132 banging techno. And that, having that as a feature on my show has been so enjoyable and so much fun. And it really, it, it keeps me on my toes as a DJ. And um, it really feeds this forever eclectic vibe that I think I'm always trying to get across in my DJ sets, yeah. And you started off 2018 unveiling your own essential mix. Yes, finally, an essential mix. <laughs> Yeah, it took, it took ages for me to get that, actually, because I think the, um, the producers were like, nah, you're already a Radio 1 DJ, and your show is three hours before the Essential Mix, so we can't put you on the station for five hours, because that just doesn't make any sense. So they finally wanted to give me the Essential Mix, and it happened to be when I was uh, away in Japan. So I had uh, Kolsch, another fellow Radio 1 artist, uh, cover my show. And I got to produce my own, and, and like the essential mix for me is, it has played such a massive role in my DJ career. Like I've been listening to it since I was a kid and, and like hearing Pete Tong's voice with the like, even when he fricking says essential, it's like goosebumps, you know? Getting a chance to do it. I, I just wanted to, to approach it so differently than my regular Radio 1 show because obviously that's a radio show. I'm talking over every second record and, and it's more me getting information across to you about the artists and like personal stories and stuff where the Essential Mix was a chance for me to build a, a two-hour piece of music. That's kind of how I viewed it. It was a proper journey through my entire career as a DJ. So it starts off with some uh, weird ambient and down-tempo stuff and noisy, weird stuff into like really dubby breaks and broken beat and then into drum and bass and a bit of jungle and then into techno and then finishing off again with um, breaks and a bit of techno. And I think that essential mix is like the perfect example. Like if I were to, to 
to give you something, say, this is me, this is my sound. That is exactly what it sounds like as a, as a DJ, outside of radio, I mean, yeah. It was so good to be, to be able to finally do that, seriously, milestone for me. And a very strong way to start the year. Yeah, yeah so definitely. So what can we look forward to for the rest of this year for your label in Toto and for yourself? So in Toto, um, I'm going to be releasing uh, much more music this year and just like hoping to be releasing stuff from other uh, new artists as well. I kind of took a, a bit of a step back from it last year just um, to focus on writing my own music again. And I'm, I'm still forever trying to find that balance between radio and gigs and studio and running a label. Uh, events, my, my boyfriend Danny, it, uh, he helps me with the events and um, his brothers as well. And it's kind of, it's a really nice family vibe. So we do all of the shows together. And uh, I think we're going to be doing quite a few things this year. Of course, the two that just um, that were just this weekend were, were really, really good and really, like, it's really heartwarming for me to have a have my own night and actually have people show up to it. Yeah, so it's it's all a bit of an, an exciting time for me. Yeah, and just just trying to the whole thing about in Toto is like that in Toto means like in total, like anything goes. And that is just kind of the ethos behind it, is to just have another creative outlet for me to, to bring my music to you and, and to like show you other artists that I love and, uh, and just help bring them through, just like I had done for me. Yeah. Wicked. Lots to look forward to. Yeah. B-Traits, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.